So Vintage, it is our great pleasure to have Pastor Miles McPherson from The Rock Church in San Diego join us. Pastor Miles, thank you so much. It's great to have you. Nice to be, and I'm honored to be with you guys. Um, now, knowing a bit about you, I heard you speak a few years ago when you wrote a book called Do Something about how a church can get outside and serve our city. It just it moved me, and I, I read a few more of your books, and I've, I've heard you speak, and uh, it's just your story is quite incredible. You were, as I understand, a, football, a footballer with the San Diego Chargers. You planted a church in San Diego, which is now over 20,000 people, multiple sites. Uh, you're a conference speaker. I see you regularly on TV being interviewed. Uh, but most importantly, married to Debbie and your kids. And uh, just tell us a bit about your family and how you've been doing in this last year in this crazy season of lockdown. Well, Pastor Gear, thank you for having me. And uh, I know you're from the UK. We say football player. I know you say footballer. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get it wrong. All the Americans are going, ah, that's our way. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I have one wife. I have three kids. Uh, the multiple wife thing didn't work out for me. I have three kids, <laughs> uh, all in their 30s. One lives in LA uh, and uh, two live down here in San Diego. I have a grandson who's six years old. And we met in college uh, and I came out in University of New Haven in Connecticut, came out here to play for the Los Angeles Rams and got cut and then played for the San Diego Chargers four years. Um, and we ended up getting married on my day off. We flew to Reno. I think it was Reno. I used to say Vegas, but it was Reno, got married. And then 15 years later, something we had a big ceremony at our church, but uh, well, 25, wow. I can't remember how many years it was, but it was a long time. Wow. Wow. And how have you guys been just as a family in this, really difficult season the last year with COVID lockdown and all the other things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I remember it was locked down the first day it was locked down. I called the chief of police. I said, Hey chief, I can't stay in the house. <laughs> and he said, you're essential, man. Go do what you got to do. So um, my wife is, uh, she has underlying issues. So she's been a lot more paranoid than me. So I'm, you know, taking precautions on her, more her behalf and everybody else's behalf, but uh, she's a constant reminder to be careful. Hmm. But, you know, luckily we've, you know, I've stayed safe. I just had a test the, uh, two days ago. And, um, but uh, like everybody else, trying to help people. I mean, hmm. I've stayed focused on helping people and, you know, looking, looking how the ch we can leverage the church to help people get food. And hmm. um, people in the hospital, we've served, you know, tons of meals to people in the hospitals and people on the street. Um, and, and so we've just looked at ways to, to serve. We, I think we fixed. 300,000 and 95 masks and just a bunch of things like that. Yeah. Well, um, you are an activator. You've, uh, you've written many books. You've launched many campaigns for the church to get out and share the gospel, to love our city. And in 2018, you wrote a book which we've greatly loved, and we're about to do a study on it called The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. Um, tell me why you wrote that book. You know, I'm 60 years old, um, and you'll hear this in the message. When I was eight years old, Martin Luther King was killed, and I remember thinking, what can we do? And fast forward, and that has gnawed at me, um, you know, seeing, experiencing racial division. My family was very diverse, so I, I, I lived racial diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew great white people, black people, Hispanic people, but then I also knew that people didn't get along. And I'm like, and these are really nice people. These are really nice people. And these are really nice people. Something's missing. And so it kind of came to a head three years ago, four years ago, and I wrote, started writing the book. And it was really to give people tools on how to get along. It's pretty simple. Um, mm -hmm. 
it wasn't a political racism is spiritual before it's political. You know, it's, it's seeing the image of God in someone as less than the image of God in you. And so how do we fulfill the great command, commandment, which is to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves? So it was really designed to give people tools on how to love each other. Um, I think we get caught up in a lot of the racial terms that we got to learn and we got to be, you know, we can't ask this question. We can't say this, but love covers all that. And if you have relationship with people, um, a lot of those politically correct things goes, go away. Hmm. Did you ever anticipate how important this message would be when you wrote it just two years before the tragic events of racial disunity and racial injustice this last year? Yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, I, when I was writing it, you know, there were events happening. Charleston happened and, and Charlottesville happened. I mean, Charlottesville. And then, you know, there was always something happening and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. Now I grew up, I was born in 1960. So when I, when I grew up, I went to school where black people couldn't live. So, you know, I've seen it, um, I've heard the stories from my family. Um, and so I think we're reliving a lot of what happened long ago in a different context, in a different way. Um, and experienced a lot of horrible things growing up in my parents as well. So yes and no. Um, every time I see it get worse, I'm like, man, we got to do something. Mm. However, you know, people accept Christ in their life when the devil overplays his hand in their life. You know, when, when people get tired of the devil beating them down, they go, okay, Jesus, I need you. Mm. I, I believe that our country, and I, I thought this a couple of years ago, so I may be wrong, but I'm hoping that we're getting to the point where we say, Jesus, we need you. We, you know, mm. we can't take the vision anymore. And that's what I'm hoping because the devil does overplay his hand, you know, um, and, and people, humans who are made in the image of God, who really are about life, get tired of death. Mm. And we have too much death going on. And I don't mean, you know, in the grave death, but death of relationships and hope and, and unity and death of vision. And so we've created this idea of a third option city, which is based on the book and the, the diversity trainings that I've created based on the book to bring cities together based on living out the third option, because, um, you know, I'm going to go for it. I wrote the book. Now let's take it to the next level. Oh, man. Well, Pastor Miles, uh, you'll be speaking this morning to our church, uh, Vintage LA, Pasadena and Malibu. And we're going to go on this journey to read your book as a church together and discuss and not just read and discuss, but to do something, to really step into proaction in these areas. So can I just pray as you come to speak to us this morning? Yes. And I'll leave you with these two words, learn it and then live it. Learn oh, it and live it. Oh, man. Well, Father, we thank you for Pastor Miles and his family, and we thank you that he's with us this morning. And I pray that you would now open our hearts to learn what you have to say. But then, Lord, let that message go from our hearts to our hands that we live it out in practical ways to love our city and see healing in our nation. So come now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. How you doing? I'm Miles McPherson, pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, and it is my honor to speak to you today about a topic that's so critical uh, to the health of our lives, our country. As we all know, our country is so divided and become more and more divided every day. And my prayer and um, hope is that this message will encourage you and give you tools on what you can do in a very practical way to bring healing uh, to our country, to our families, to our communities, to our schools. 
and to our churches. And so before I start, I wanna pray for you and pray that God would um, prepare your heart uh, for what, what you're gonna hear and anything that's gonna challenge you that you would receive it humbly and be able to put it into action. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. And I pray that you move on the hearts of everybody who's listening, uh, that you prepare the hearts for what you have to say and give me the words to say to make this message crystal clear in Jesus' name, amen. Um, my name is Miles Pearson. I grew up in New York, had a dream to play in the NFL. Uh, I played in Pop Warner High School, college, went to University of New Haven, was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in 1982 and got cut, which means I got fired, and then went and played uh, for the San Diego Chargers for four years. Uh, but about three years ago, when I was eight years old, actually, it wasn't three years ago, when I was eight years old, uh, Martin Luther King was killed. And I remember when he was killed, what I felt and what I thought. I felt how unfair it was, but I thought, what can we do? See, I grew up in a very segregated world. I grew up in New York in a neighborhood called Lakeview, which was mostly black. And the first eight years of my life, I went to a, a school in a neighborhood that was 100% white. Got harassed in the white neighborhood because I wasn't white. Got harassed in the black neighborhood because I wasn't black enough. I have uh, four of my grandparents from Jamaica. One grandmother's white. Another grandmother's half Chinese and black. And my, other, my two grandfathers are black. So I have the United Nations in my blood and, and in my family. So in my family, we all got along, obviously. And in my neighborhood, there was black. And my, where I went to school was white. And my football teams that I played on were always black and white for the most part. And we all got along. So I lived in this divided world and was dealing with racism all my life and always felt like, what can I do? And for all those years, I was thinking that. So three years ago, getting back to that, I started writing a book called The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. And here's why we get the, here's where we get that title. We live in an us versus them culture. Um, you're, you're either for or against the police. You're either for or against Black Lives Matter. You're either Republican or Democrat. You're either for or against immigrants. And, and everybody feels so pulled apart us against them. And if you pick us, you are inevitably against them. And that's what everybody feels like. And once you're on one side, you feel like you have to be the enemy of the other side. The story in the Bible, Joshua chapter five, Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. And in chapter five, verse 13, it says that he was confronted by the commander of the Lord's army. And he says to the commander of the Lord's army, are you for us or our adversary? And this is the mentality that we have today. If you're not on my side, you must be my enemy. And if you're on my side and you agree with the other side, we will, we will cancel you because you're a sellout and we will <laughs> throw you to the wolves. And this divisive mentality is even in the church. It's in every area, every segment of society. But as believers, we have to raise above that and not be activists as much as prophetic and call people to a third option of honoring what we have in common. I wanna to talk to you today about how we got divided, but more importantly, how we can come together. And in this us versus them culture, how we can come together is by living the third option and honoring, giving value, placing value uh, 
on what we have in common. And I'm going to propose to you, and as you look around the room where you're at, or, or you may be on Zoom, whatever you, wherever you're at, that you think about all the people you know, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different cultures, uh, different genders, that you are more similar, we are all more similar than different. That we have more similarities than differences. I want you to think about someone who lives completely around the other side of the planet from you, that uh, they have a different culture, they don't speak your language at all, they don't look like you at all, and I'm going to propose to you that you are more similar to them than different. That you have a brain like them, you have pretty much all the organs they have, uh, you love your family like they do, you love food like they do, you love to sleep like they do, you have a purpose or you want to know your purpose like they do, you have gifts and talents like they do, you're, you're human like they do, uh, uh, you are made in the image of God. You are fully human. Uh, you speak a language. You, you like to give and receive love. You like to give and receive forgiveness, or at least you want to receive forgiveness. Um, you bleed red. You have DNA. You have bones and muscles and a heart and a stomach and intestines. I can go on and on and on and on about all the things you have in common, and I'm going to propose to you that the only difference, the major difference, is that you and we are all different variations of the same thing. Even if they're a different color than you, they have a color, you have a color. It's just a different variation of color. We are all more similar. And what we have been trained to do is find something that's different and leverage that as a reason to be divided. What I'm going to propose to you is that if we can honor, give honor to the fact that we are more similar. I was in a, in a prison speaking and this white supremacist was walking around the track. Um, it was in the yard of the prison. I had just spoken and all the guys were standing out there and these three white supremacists were walking around the track. One was in front and two were behind him. They had no shirt on and they were walking around. It was a, it was a pathway around the field, the yard. The yard was grass technically. And I went up to him and called him over and he got this close to me. We had a very brief conversation, but he was about this close to me. And what we didn't realize is that he and I were more similar than different. But besides all the things I just said to you, we were 99.5% genetically identical. You were 99.5%, 0.3% genetically identical with everybody on the planet. We are more similar than different. So I'm going to give you a few ways we can bridge this gap and give honor. And I say honor, I mean place value. Imagine if when you met somebody, you place value on what you shared. First, let me talk about how we, how we got divided. Um, sociologists um, describe how we self-segregate. They describe it by calling it grouping. We all place ourselves in different groups. All of you out there are in multiple groups. If you're a guy, you're, that's a group. That's your in-group. If you're a guy, you're part of the in-group of guys. That's in-group. I'm in that group. If you're a dad, I'm a dad. That's a group. If you're a dad, all of us dads are in the dad in-group. If you're a granddad, which I am, that's another group. So all of us grandfathers are part of the grandfather in-group. Women are a group. Single women are a group. Married women are a group. Women with babies are a group. Women with grown children are a group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So whatever group you're in, that's your in-group. 
If you're not in that group, you're part of the out group. So you got in group, out group. And, and once you identify the people of your in-group, you express in-group bias. In-group bias is your tendency to give preferential treatment to people in your group. And I'm going to read a list to you from my book. This is the book, Third Option. I'm going to read something to you. These are nine characteristics of in-group bias. This is what we express towards people who are in my in-group or people who are like me. In other words, if you're a dad, me, you're like me in the sense that we're both dads. If you're a guy, you're like me in the sense that we're both guys. Okay. So this is how we treat people of our in-group. I am more comfortable with those who are like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those who are like me. I am more patient with those who are like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those who are like me. I express more grace when mistakes are made by those who are like me. It's easier to communicate with those who are like me. I assume I will get along easier with those who are like me. I am more willing to go out of my way to help those who are like me. And I possess more positive assumptions about those who are like me. If you're in my in-group, I give you favor. It's something we naturally do. Why? Because we feel comfortable with people who are like us. They're people we know, we're familiar with, we understand how they think, we understand you know, what they, how they act. And so we can fit right in. It's just a natural thing we do. Now, the opposite's true. People who are not like you, we do the opposite. I am less comfortable with those who are not like me. I am less inclined to spend time socially with those who are not like me. I'm less patient with those who are not like me. I offer less grace to when mistakes are made by those not like me. It is more difficult to communicate with those who are not like me. I don't assume I will get along with those who are not like me. I'm less willing to go out of my way to help those who are not like me. And I possess fewer, whew, this one's hard, fewer positive assumptions about those who are not like me. Now, Gender is a group, occupation is a group, socioeconomics is a group, and this is a group. Imagine if you gave preferential treatment to people who are like you and you gave less preferential treatment to those who are not like you, that's racism. And that's what people, when they experience racism, that's what they experience, out-group discrimination versus in-group bias. Now. One of the ways to make someone part of your out group, part of your in group, and then one of the ways to convert someone part of your out group as part of your in group, it's so simple. Just find something that you have in common. If you find somebody that has hair and you have hair, guess what? You can talk about hair <laughs> and you can talk about all the issues you have with your hair and all the, the, the way you take care of your hair. And all of a sudden you have something in common and watch what's going to happen. That's going to snowball to all these other things you have in common. It's not really that complicated. Most of the time when people are prejudiced and people are discriminated because they don't know people. They think that they're so different and so foreign. And they just talk about them. And so I want to give you a few ways to bridge that gap. Number one, we have to acknowledge that we all have blind spots. 
a blind spot is not knowing what you don't know. It is the gap between what you intend to do and accomplish by what you say or do, what your, your intent and your impact. It's the gap between your intent of your words and actions and your impact. Now, having a blind spot is not knowing what you don't know, is that you think you know something and you don't even know you don't even know. And one of the ways we get that is from our social narrative. Social narrative is a story that shapes how you see the world. All your life, especially growing up, you've been getting all this information from your family, from your friends, from your neighborhood. And that information shapes how you see the world. That information determines in your mind who's safe, who's not safe, who's smart, who's not smart, who works hard, who doesn't work hard what news station to listen to and what news station not to listen to, how to interpret the news on this way and how to interpret the news this way. And so you, you get all that information when you grow up and you have this perspective. And then <laughs> social reinforcement is that you hang around people who have the same narrative, the same story, the same prescription through which they see the world. The problem is, it is very limited. It's only what you have learned and it creates blind spots. In other words, here are the blinders. Here's how I see the world. Everything over here, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know what I don't know. The problem is you're one of 7 billion people. That means there's 7 billion perspectives. And we don't even realize that we don't even know we don't know. I would imagine that there are a lot of you out there who are right-handed. Uh, matter of fact, if you're in a room with people, whether or not, just raise your hand if you're right-handed. I want to let you know that the world was made by pretty much right-handed people for right-handed people. Now, I'm left-handed. All of us left-handers, raise your hand. We have the disadvantage. We are the minority. If you were in school, when you were at school, the desk was on your right elbow. And you got to put your elbow on the desk in school and write. If you were left-handed like all of us left-handers, we were out here in space drawing our name and the ink was getting on our hand because we were writing over the ink. Um, if you are right-handed, you can get a right-handed catcher's mitt at any sporting goods store. If you're left-handed, good luck. You'll drive all around town trying to find a catcher's mitt. If you're right-handed, you can get a driver in golf, any golf shop. Since the new, the new drivers and new clubs come out, they're all right-handed. Try to get a left-handed. Uh, driver. You'll be driving all around. And what happens is while you're home playing catch with your right-handed catches, man, your left-handed friend is driving around town and you're like, what is taking you so long? I got mine just like that. It's called the right privilege. It is the privilege or the advantage of being right-handed in a right-handed world. It is a blind spot. And the blind spot is that you don't even know you have the advantage because it's all you've ever known. And you've never been left-handed. You've never had to see the world and experience the world as a left-handed person. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't like left-handed people. It doesn't necessarily mean that you designed it to make the left-handed people have the disadvantage, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't remove the disadvantage just because you don't realize it. The disadvantage is there. The inconvenience is there. It's a blind spot. And what we don't, what we don't realize is that often if you are ethnically around your in-group all the time and you are receiving in-group bias all the time and you are not the out-group 
You are not the other. You don't know what it means and it's like to be the other. And it's called the blind spot. Now, we all have blind spots, no matter what you look like, no matter how much money you make, no matter where you live, we all have blind spots. Matter of fact, I often ask groups, I ask the ladies in the group, how many of you ladies know a creepy dude? <laughs> and ladies always start laughing because I think every woman knows some creepy dudes. And then I challenge the guys to ask the ladies in your life if you're the creepy dude. <laughs> and, and, and dudes don't realize they have blind spots because they're just creepy by nature. <laughs> and, 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 we don't, and a lot of times guys don't even know. They just think being creepy is normal. Uh, it's a blind spot. So number one, we all have blind spots. Number two, um, convert, change the word, eliminate the term those people and call people your brother, your sister, your neighbor. The greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor as yourself. If we're supposed to love God with our heart, mind, and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves, how is it that the church is so divided? How is that so many people who say they love God are so divided and prejudiced in, in a lot of cases? Um, it's because of the idea of labels. See, if I call you something less than my neighbor, if I call you a thug, if I call you a white this, a black this, an illegal, if I dehumanize you by giving you a label less than neighbor, I permit myself not to love you because I'm supposed to love my neighbor. But if you're not my neighbor, I don't need to love you. And we do it all the time. If you just watch the news, the news will give you labels uh, for everybody under the sun. Because once you have that label, what happens is you apply everything that's connected to that label to those people. In other words, if you call someone a thug, everything you think of as a thug gets on that person. And that label tells you what to expect. And it tells you what not to expect. For example, if the person's a thug, you expect them to be ignorant, violent, dangerous, you know, destructive, and you don't expect them to be kind, friendly, smart, intelligent, necessarily. And so whatever label you put on someone, it is going to determine the expectation you have on them, and it is going to be the filter through which you treat them, and is going to limit or expand your ability to love them and give honor to what you have in common. And so one of the best ways to make that person part of your in-group is give them the same label you have, neighbor, brother, sister. Because number one, you do not know them. I'm going to get to that in a minute. So convert those people to your neighbor, which will obligate you. Well, one, it will humanize them because racism is when you see the humanity, the image of God in someone as less than yours. Give them the title neighbor, the same title you give yourself. This is why it's so important to love yourself and give yourself an honorable label. Give them the same honorable label. And all of a sudden, you will be able to love them and see them more for who they are than what your social narrative has determined them to be. Um, number three, um, give honor to people's color. Don't say you don't see color because you do. I remember the first time someone told me they didn't see my color. 
I thought they had eye stigmatism. I never heard that before. I, I was like, what does that mean that you don't see someone's color? And they said, no, no, we see color. We just don't see your color. I was like, well, if you see colors, how do you know you don't see mine? I don't get that. Listen, even if you don't technically see red, blue, green, yellow, you'll see gray, blue, uh, gray, white, and black. Even when you close your eyes, you see black. So you can't not see color. Your brain processes millions and millions of bits of information every second, and 90% comes through your eyes. Your eyes see shape, depth, motion, all kinds of stuff, and your eyes process color. You can't not see color. When you say you don't see color, what you're saying is that I'm invalidating everything that your color represents in your life, your heritage, your culture, your experience. There was a, um, a young lady, she was white, and she went to Hawaii to get a tan. She went to Hawaii, laid in the sun for seven days to change her color. Fine, she comes home, now she is brown. She went from white to brown. Okay, <laughs> just think about that. She wants everybody to see her color. And this guy who she was trying to impress didn't ask her out. And she was boo-hooing to me because she was throwing her boop-boop, throwing her little shoulders, little uh, uh, sh um, spaghetti strap uh, shoulder. Now it's brown, her, her, her shoulder, throwing it in this guy's face. Boop, boop. And he wasn't biting. <laughs> well, <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't being attracted to her and calling her up. Um, and she was complaining to me. I'm like, it's amazing how we celebrate the brown we get in Hawaii, the tan we get in Hawaii, but we invalidate the tan that we get in the womb. Listen, <laughs> it's amazing how white people are, I think, more colored than black people. Here's what I mean by that. In the springtime, they're white. In the summertime, they're either brown or red. And then when they get cold, they turn blue. Culture says white people, people of color, division. In reality, we're all different shades of brown. In reality, we're all just different shades of the same color. When you get a tan, your melanin cells that you already have are activated by the sun and, and it makes, and the melanin cells, which are brown, are activated and you get a tan. That's what that is. And so let's, instead of um, invalidating color, let's celebrate color. Let's celebrate color. Um, number four, um, have a race consultation, not a race conversation. Here's what I mean by that. Because you see color, every time you talk to somebody, you are having a race conversation in your head. You know you're talking to a white guy. You know you're talking to a black guy. You know you're talking to a Mexican guy. You know you're talking to an Asian person. You may not know if they're from what part of Asia they're from, but at least you know they're Asian. And, and you're having in your head this conversation. You're asking yourself, what are they? You're asking yourself, where are they from? There's nothing wrong with that. It's like seeing a rose saying, that's a red rose. That's a white rose. I want to pick one. It's just process information. The problem comes is when your social narrative, the information you learn throughout past the time about those people is that you, the problem is when you see them and you put a label on them without getting to know them. I was at a, um, a golf course and this guy who worked at the golf course picked me up in the cart. He had this little shirt on, white guy in shape, 
25 years old and he picked me up and wanted to give me a ride to my car. So I got in the car and we're talking. I said, hey man, where are you from? He's from Iowa. He's in shape, looks like a football player. I said, how old are you? He said, 25. So I want you to imagine this white dude from Iowa in shape, um, uh, golf, you know, shorts, college shirt, <laughs> white guy from Iowa, 25 in shape. Okay. I said, what's your name? He said, DeAndre. <laughs> so, so I know you. if you're laughing right now, that's not bad it's probably very normal because I would not have imagined a white dude from Iowa named DeAndre. I never met a white dude from anywhere named DeAndre, but much less Iowa, right? And he said it like his whole tone changed. It's like he took on the whole personality of DeAndre. That's how he said it. I busted up laughing and he said, I get that all the time. I was like, where did you get that name? You know, his parents loved the name. I, it was a whole long story. The point is, is that in my head and in your head, you were having a race conversation. Cool. You were processing the information based on what you know. But that's a race conversation. A race consultation is where you suspend those assumptions and you let someone disclose to you who they are. Imagine if you met people and you, your goal was to get to know who they are and to discover what you have in common and discover how amazing they are. That's the third option. So I want to encourage you, celebrate color, have race consultations, um, convert those people to your neighbor, your brother, and acknowledge that you have blind spots. Um, and I pray that this message was encouraging to you and enlightening for you. I pray you get this book. We also have an e-course uh, at thethirdoptiontraining.com, thethirdoptiontraining.com, an e-course, six weeks to go through all of this and more. And it's, it's a fascinating journey uh, that I take people on. And I just encourage you, let's be the solution and stop pr promoting the problem of division and be the solution of honor and unity. God bless you. It's Mal McPherson, and I'll be praying for you.